Uh, this week's Torah portion is Vayeshev, which is the beginning of the story of Joseph and his brothers. And uh, we're, we called this class this year the shadow side of Torah, meaning let's look at it, parts we don't usually look at, or let's look at it from different angles than we usually look at it, and see what by turning and turning it, you know, and seeing it from a different angle, what we might glean. And so uh, uh, I um, picked this book up off my yes. shelf today. Do you own this? Yes. It's called Torah Queries. I took a class with Josh Lesser. Ah, he's fantastic. Weekly commentators on the Hebrew Bible um, uh, from a queer perspective. Uh, so, you know, as we, uh, over the last decades, as women were enfranchised, uh, as um, scholars of Torah, books started to be produced on women's Torah commentaries. Like, what would a, what would, um, uh, a woman's perspective, how would it overlap with the traditional male perspective, but what might, be, what might a woman see that's never been put into print before because women weren't at the table? You know what I'm saying? And so then, in re more recent decades now, there are a significant number of gay and lesbian rabbis and scholars who want to look at the Torah through their life experience. And maybe they pick up perspectives that wouldn't have occurred to a heteronormative uh, traditional reading. And so I picked this book up off the shelf, and I'll tell you why. Our student rabbi, Lily Solacek, is uh, uh, non-binary. Th and they call themselves genderqueer. And Lily also uses the pronouns they and them uh, to refer to themselves, which is, you know... It's not easy, but there was never a way to designate someone uh, who doesn't identify as either male or female um, uh, in English. So I'm doing my best to refer to Lily as they. Um, but Lily shared a teaching with me that got me going with this. So that's what I wanted to start by uh, describing. And then I looked in this book, and I started looking around in the Torah. So, I think I want to start with, uh, well, we, the Parsha begins on uh, chapter 37, that's page 246, thank you. Genesis chapter 37. Jacob now settled in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. And this is the family history of Jacob. When Joseph was 17 years old, he who na'ar at b'nei vilha, he would tend the flock alongside his brothers. He was an attendant along with the sons of Bilha and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph would bring malicious reports about them to his father. In other words, malicious, dibatam ra'ah, he would tell on them. Uh, and they were, they, so, 
Israel loved Joseph better than his other sons because he was the child of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. So there's that famous a striped coat, a, uh, a, the coat of many colors. So Rabbi Lili was explaining to me, and this coat of many colors plays a very big role in this story, uh, pointed out to me that this term is used only one other time in the entire Hebrew Bible. This idea of an of a ornamented tunic or a coat of many colors or a stripe. And that one other time is in the book of Samuel. You don't have this in your Chumash. In the stories of King David. In the stories of King David, there's a very dis- disturbing, uh, let's say just uh, uh, violent tale uh, where one of David's sons from his many wives, Amnon, uh, lusts after one of the daughters of another of David's wives, a beautiful maiden named Tamar. Remember this one? Mm -hmm. Amnon and Tamar? And Amnon rapes her in a very, very underhanded and and, uh, uh, way. I, 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 and for, and force, forces himself on her and rapes her. And after he rapes her, he said, Amnon then felt a very great loathing for her. And he said, get out of my sight. Right? It's an incredible story. Uh, and uh, she pleaded with him, please don't do this. But he wouldn't listen to her. And she and, and, and gets, has, has her kicked out of uh, his presence. And then it says, at the time, she was wearing a ketonet pasim, a coat of many colors, an ornamented tunic. We don't know exactly how to say it. It says, for uh, a ketonet pasim, ki chen tilbashna benot hamelech habtulot. For this is how the virgin daughters of the king would dress. Oh. Oh. Isn't that something? So now, it's very interesting. It's very interesting. And that's just one, that's just one, uh, in, I'll, I'll tell you more. This isn't to say, and, and the commentaries in this book, which are very learned, don't say that, oh, so Joseph was gay. Right? That's, not, that's not the point they're trying to make, because those categories didn't necessarily even exist in ancient times. Right? But what about Joseph? And why is a, so these are, que- these are little clues in the Torah that grabbed my attention. The only other time that a coat of many colors is ever mentioned is here in the book of Samuel with a description of why, of who wears it. Do you follow what I'm saying? A virgin daughters of the king. Two, two things. One, the king cherishes his daughters and so dresses them as their ancestor was dressed. Which ancestor? Uh, Joseph. Joseph. Oh, really? Right. So that's one thing. But Tamar, and Tamar's in this Parsha. That's right. This is Tamar, the name Tamar of this Tamar. <laughs> There's another Tamar who appears in this Who's portion. More righteous than Judah. Um, who is the mother 
of the ancestors of King David. And now here's a story about King David, and Tamar makes another appearance in the Torah. So uh, that's, it's, it's quite interesting to me. So there's something anomalous about Joseph, something unusual, something that sets him apart. And it's often going to have to do with clothing, by the way. Well, you see all the references to Joseph's clothing in, this, in, the, story, in the story of this portion. But you didn't pick up, I mean, you don't pick up until all of a sudden it's there. Well, you don't notice things until somebody points them out to you. So, I, so first of all, the, it seems that a Ketonet Pasim, which is, has no other mention in the five books of Moses, and is only mentioned one other time in the Torah, where it says that Tamar, who is also named, a different Tamar is named in this week's Torah portion, uh, wore, wore a Ketonet Pasim because that's the way the maiden daughters of the king were dressed. And it says she then put ashes on her head and tore the ketonet pasim she was wearing, and she put her hands on her head wailing as she walked out, because she, you know, her life was over, ruined. Um, uh, okay, so we'll come, we may come back to that. There's another feature. I, I want you to ask questions. Yeah, we're just, we're, I'm just opening these doors, and we'll see where our thoughts come. I'm just curious. No, that's where the custom comes from, Kriya. It does? Yeah. Oh. It's so it comes a, from this well, it comes from all over the Bible. Got it. All over the Bible, when someone suffers a death or a terrible loss, they rent their garment. Well, they're, you know, she suffered a death and a terrible loss of herself. Yes, it's a kind of death. That's right. That's right. That's right. She has suffered a death. Mm-hmm. Yes? significant and it's symbolic. Actually an in initiation's clothing is one of the important things all over the world. Mm-hmm. And, uh, any, at any rite of passage. There are special garments. Mm-hmm. Bridegrooms always have to have special clothing to, that covers the heart and so the bride would give something very special to the bridegroom to wear on that day. Oh. One of the, so it's significant as uh-huh. you say. Uh-huh. Thank you. Barb? You know, I, I had the privilege of doing a eulogy of sorts pretty recently, um, and so I looked into Kriya more than I had ever done in the past. And I kind of feel like we're shortcutting by just having... Oh, it's terrible. So black thing, we know. have now, pre, we now <laughs> have ribbons, mourning yeah. ribbons in the Jewish tradition that you tear and then you wear for the week. Now, there are um, uh, more traditional 
Jews still tear, still do it, and still I tear think, their garment. I think it's it's so symbolic. I think it's so. I don't know, me personally. Yeah, of course. Know, granted, you don't want to rip your clothes. Well, we have this. We have this. We have this contemporary dilemma, which is you're wearing your best clothes <laughs> to the funeral because that's what you're supposed to do these days. Whereas back then, you would rent your garment and put ashes on your head and sit on the ground. Uh, so now, what do we have left from that? We sit on, and if we're following Jewish custom, we sit on a low stool. We put a ribbon on that we tear, and uh, we don't we don't shave and we don't uh, care for our appearance during that time. So these are kind of the way the tradition has brought it into the present. But no, I think tearing a garment is a is obviously a powerful, an incredibly powerful expression of being torn up inside. Yeah. So, uh, so now, yes, it all gets. The modern funeral industry has sanitized everything, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it, it, that's just the way it is. Uh, and we're, we're, there have been many books written about how uh, how uh, the current funeral industry wants to tries is designed to distance us from our loss, not to uh, experience it. Uh, experience death in it the way in its sort of closeness and fullness yeah so that's kriya yeah so the other main clue textual clue about uh uh joseph's unusual character is in verse uh in chapter 39 verse 6 and then we're going to go we're, we're, we're going to go through things more uh, slowly, but I just want to point this out to you. Page 253. You remember what happens. Joseph goes to find his brothers. They say, here comes that dreamer. And they throw him into a pit and they strip his coat off him. This happens in chapter 37. And uh, eventually, we'll go back to this, they tear up his coat cover it with goat's blood, and show it to his father Jacob and say, do you recognize this coat? And meanwhile, Jacob has been shorn, stripped of his clothes and is sold as a slave into Egypt. That's what happens in chapter 37. And uh, when down in Egypt, he gets sold into the house of, the, of a man called Potiphar, who is one of the Surisim, uh, one of Pharaoh's officers or captains or something. And Potiphar's uh, a wife takes an interest in Joseph. And this is where this one phrase I want to point out to you in verse 6. It says, And Potiphar left all that was in Joseph's hands and gave no thought to what he had other than the food he ate. Now Joseph happened to be fair of form and fair of appearance. Is somebody? Yeah, someone will get that. Yefei Toar and Yefei Mar, fair of form and fair of appearance. So what you need to know about that is that this is the only time in the entire Tanakh when a man is described in this way. That's fascinating. The only time when a man, a male, is described in this way. Rachel's described this way when Jacob sees Rachel and it says, Rachel Yefat Toar Yefat Mar'eh. And Rachel was beautiful of form and beautiful of appearance. 
And the only other place where someone is described in exactly those terms is Esther. Queen Esther. V'hana'ara, and the maiden was Yefat To'ar, V'yafat Esther was beautiful of form and beautiful of appearance. And think about the story of Esther, uh, uh, how she's going to now, she goes, the king loves her and loves her more than all the other. Um, another connection between Esther and um, uh, uh, Joseph is it says, and Israel loved Joseph more than all of his other sons. And then in Esther it says, and the king loved Esther more than any of the other women. So, so again, following this thread, Joseph wears this ornamented tunic, which the, later in the Torah we learn is a clothing that, that uh, daughters of, maiden daughters of the king wear. And he's referred to as beautiful. Um, so that means, let's see, this, this guy, uh, the author of this chapter, his name's Greg Finkwater, I don't know him. Uh, he's in Boulder? Oh. Uh, uh, oh, sorry, that's the wrong, uh, where am I? I like how he starts this, this port, his, his commentary. He says, um, uh, Scholars, rabbis, and LGBT activists looking for queer openings in the Torah <laughs> often focus on Joseph. The ups and downs and emotional drama of his life are pregnant with queer subtext, <laughs> making Joseph the figure many LGBT readers would vote the most likely to be gay <laughs> of any character in the Torah. Um, and the rabbinic, great rabbinic and medieval commentators make the modern task of queering Joseph even easier, with all of them having noted that Joseph has a certain sensibility. Rashi, so when we're ta- if you're not familiar with Torah study, Commentators in the in, in late antiquity and middle ages would read these same texts with as much care as we are now, and they weren't bashful about expanding on the readings. So uh, Rashi wrote that Joseph dressed his hair and touched up his eyes so that he should appear good-looking. Uh, these are echoed in earlier Midrashic commentary. Um, suggesting something about Joseph has intrigued Torah scholars throughout the ages. Although Torah scholars would not argue that Joseph was gay, with all the modern-day assumptions we ascribe to that word, a concept that did not, did not even exist for the ancients, there is enough evidence to suggest that Joseph was in some sense, quote-unquote, queer, an outsider dwelling on the inside, a figure apart from his family, someone who did not fit into the normal uh, expected... Uh, So we don't make a distinction. We call a man bidu and a woman bedda. And it's beautiful. It's not handsome. It's not handsome. It's just beautiful. It's beautiful. And 
that's a very old thing. So right, think about. So we moderns are skipping. We're, we're no, skimping. We're we're making a. Yeah. Does that mean Joseph has to be gay? No, that doesn't that's, mean anything like that. Uh-huh. It's beautiful. Uh, so there's something about Joseph that is uniquely beautiful, including his clothing. Something extraordinary about him, right? Rabbi, you said it, didn't you? You said he was beautiful. They both the the, the, the maiden and, and he or and Esther was we know Esther was beautiful within as well as without. Isn't that enough? In the South my aunt used to teach me, they say pretty is as pretty does. Because I wasn't particularly pretty, but I, a lot of other people were, so she said, Never mind, pretty is as pretty does. Mm-hmm. So, so and to me, yeah. So to me, it's interesting how we, especially today, as we understand gender stuff, that we assume gender is the same as sexuality. So to me, I think more that that the issue with Joseph is that he seemed feminine. He's feminine. Feminine, rather than gay or straight. Because we're not talking about who he's having sex with. We're talking about that he seemed feminine. And when I thought about it that way, I thought about how Eve Ensler, who wrote Vagina Monologues, talks a lot about how in our culture, and clearly it transcends that, the feminine is punished. Uh huh. Yeah. So, you know, and that, for instance, men who, ident- who biological men who identify as female are punished, beaten, killed, mm-hmm. ridiculed. So to me, it's, it's more about that. It's, and, and the story about, oh, the, the woman you Tamar. Tamar, the story about her too is that innocence and that beauty and that gets punished. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So I've never, ton, I've never explored this reading before, but that's why I thought we'd have this class, to just explore readings that we've never explored. I don't have an agenda or a desired outcome from this reading. I just want to explore. Uh, so thank you. Thank you. So, um, uh, so we have that evidence, textual evidence, that, there's, that, that uh, links Joseph to certain qualities of beauty. Right? We can say that. We can say that. Um, uh, so having, having just, let's have that in the background. And I want to talk about Joseph's clothing, okay? Because um, it, the, so we say clothes make the man. No, there's a, there's a masculine phrase, right? Yeah. Um, but it, it's, um, our, our costumes, Joseph's costumes, are so crucial in this story. Let's, ta- let's take a look. Let's go back to the beginning the on 246. And he's wearing his coat of many colors. And then if you recall, Joseph dreamt a dream. And when he told it to, oh, when his brothers saw in verse four that Joseph was one, the one their father loved more than any of his brothers, they hated him and could not even say a kind word about him. Couldn't bear to speak peaceably to him. Joseph dreamt a dream one time and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. There we were, tying up sheaves of wheat in the field, when my sheaf rose up and stood up straight. 
your sheaves, then paraded in a circle around mine and bowed down to my sheaves. Okay, well, I don't know. If we're talking about <laughs> sexuality, it's... <laughs> I, this is a pretty phallic dream. I, they're all flaccid and bowing down to him, and he's erect and upright. I don't know. Also, faggot comes I, I, from a... I have a, uh, I have a, I have a point. What, 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 what was the popular singer? She wrote the song of... I'm from Dolly, Dolly Parton. Many colors. Dolly Parton. Yeah. Dolly Parton wrote that song. Yeah. 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 And Andrew Lloyd Webber's right comes from here. Andrew Lloyd Webber's musical Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat is also a retelling of the story of Joseph. Yes, it's part of the, the it's part of the the coat of many colors is part of our cultural language. Yeah. <coughs> he dreamt another oh. And his brother said to him, are you so certain you will reign over us? Do you really expect to rule us? So they hated him all the more for his dreams and for his words. He dreamt yet another dream and recounted it to his brothers, saying, look, I dreamed another dream. And look, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when we recounted it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him, saying, what is this dream you dreamt? Your mother, your brothers, and I? Must we really come to bow down to the ground before you? His brothers detested him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Uh, in fact, these are prophetic dreams, because 20 years from now, they will come and bow down to him in Egypt. Uh, and when his brothers went to tend their father's flock at Shechem, Israel said to Joseph, Halo achecha ro'im b'shechem lecha ve'ashalchecha uh, your brothers must be tending the flock at Shechem. Come, let me send you to them. And Joseph answered, Here I am. Israel then said to him, Pray, go see how your brothers are. Not shlom achecha, vet shlom hatzon. So the word shalom is repeated many times here. Shlom means both peace and well-being. And bring me back word. And so he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. There, a man happened upon Joseph as he was to'eh basadeh. To'eh means he was lost. He was, he was, uh, to'eh means to have lost your way. So he was wandering in the countryside. Joseph was lost. The man asked him, what are you looking for? And he said, I'm looking for my brothers. Now, we could spend a whole session on this because uh, uh, he says, literally, what are you seeking and he, or looking for? And he says, I am looking for my brothers. And uh, Genesis is a book about brothers, basically. Brothers, Brothers, are they going to seek each other's well-being or welfare, or are they going to kill each other? The man said, can you please tell me where they are tending the flock? The man said, they left this place. I heard them say, let's go to Dotan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dotan. And they saw him in the distance. And before he neared them, they wickedly plotted against him to bring about his death, to kill him. They said to one another, here comes that master of dreams. Now then, let us kill him and throw him into one of these pits and say a wild animal devoured him 
and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard this, he saved him from their hands by saying, no, let us not kill him. Do not shed blood. Do not throw him into this pit in the wilderness. Do not lay a hand against him in order to deliver him from their hands to restore him to his father. So Reuben had a plan. So when Joseph came to his brothers, Vayafshitu et Yosef et Kuton to, they stripped Joseph of his coat, the coat of many colors that he had on. And then they took him and threw him into the pit, a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. They had sat down to eat when they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites traveling from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with uh, laudanum, balm, and mastic. In Hebrew, nechot utsri valot. Is there no balm in Gilead? That's a famous line from Jeremiah. They were heading down to Egypt. Judah then said to his brothers, How will it profit us if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Let us rather sell him to the Ishmaelites. Then our hand will not be on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh. Um, and his brothers heeded him. So when the Midianite traders came through, they pulled Joseph up out of the pit. They sold Joseph for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites. Let's assume the Ishmaelites and Midianites are the same thing. Who carried Joseph off to Egypt. Reuben went back to the pit, but Joseph was not there in the pit. And he tore his clothes. So there's that tearing hand. He returned to his brothers and he said, The boy is not there. What am I, where am I to go? I can't, what's to, what am I to do? So they slaughtered a goat, took Joseph's coat, and dipped the coat in the blood. They carried the coat of many colors and brought it to their father. And they said, we found this. Do you recognize it? Is it your son's coat? He recognized it, saying, my son's coat. A wild animal has devoured him. Joseph has been ripped to shreds. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned his son many days. His sons and daughters endeavored to console him, but he refused to be consoled, saying, Nope, I will be in mourning until I join my son in Sheol, in the land of shades, in the land of death. And thus did his father bewail him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold him to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officers, captain of the guard. Okay. So, the word katonet Clo uh, uh, his coat is repeated five times in two verses. And on either side of the verse, Reuben has torn his clothes and then Jacob tears his clothes. Yes? Does Reuben, was he told that he was sold? It sounds like he might have not been told that. Uh, he might not have been told. The story's confusing in that regard. Right, because I thought, oh my gosh. Reuben is an agent of trying to save Joseph, and then Judah is also an agent of trying to save Joseph. Yeah. So, clothing is torn repeatedly in this passage, and Joseph's coat is torn and covered with blood. Uh, Reuben tears his clothes, and Jacob tears his clothes. 
and Joseph is presumably basically naked as or you know unclothed in a pit until they haul him up and they sell him down to slit to be a slave in Egypt now back on the sexuality uh, front one of the reasons that the rabbis uh, make some uh, midrashim about this is that where it says the Mennonites sold him to Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officers. The Hebrew word is saris. So the other place the word saris comes up is in the book of Esther. Again, eunuchs. In the book of Esther, saris is a eunuch. In ancient Persia, the king protected his harem by having all the uh, off, all of his advisors be uh, uh, castrated, uh, they were eunuchs. So there's no. It doesn't mean that Potiphar was a eunuch because Saris might also mean officer, right? In some other context, but that's interesting, and the rabbis don't miss it. Um, the, the the contemporary rabbis, or even no, the ancient rabbis. Because they, they read the text more carefully than we do. It's Saris. Well, all the Saris say, all the Sarisim in the book of Esther of King Ahasuerus are clearly eunuchs, right? They, they tend to the harem and they, you know, they advise the king. And so is Potiphar a eunuch? It, uh, it's fascinating. Is that why his wife wants to... Is that why his wife, uh, yeah, is, you know... <laughs> It's looking for somebody else to sleep with? Is that uh, um, one midrash that I was reading says that Potiphar wasn't initially a eunuch, but when he, get this, this is from like, this is from the late antiquity, third, fourth century or earlier, that Potiphar um, wanted Joseph for himself. And Gabriel, the archangel, okay, this is not, this is like, this is uh, imagined storytelling, right? Gabriel, the archangel Gabriel, came and castrated Potiphar so that he couldn't have Joseph. It's like, okay. All of which is to say, and I don't have any answers, that's why I want to do this class with you, is that, some, is that sexu- sexual energy, ma- masculine energy, beauty, desire, they're all wrapped up they're all sort of, these things are woven into this story. Marka? Well, I would say throughout history, when there's a third gender, it's always a beautiful man. And that it's meant, you know, from eunuchs to shamans, they're meant to be told this liminal place. They're meant to have beautiful clothes and to sing and to have dreams and to be an object of desire. And I don't know of any other widespread third gender representation. I mean, this is everywhere. This is still in indigenous That's cultures. why I'm glad you're telling us. So in indigenous cultures, there's a category of, of dreamer, of shaman. Uh, rem- who is Joseph? He's, a, he's an interpreter of dreams. He's who, a shaman. He's a shaman. Who, he's not like his brothers. He has these amazing dreams that are prophetic, his, it's like, who is Joseph? So now, that gets, that's so helpful because we, let's talk about a third gender or an anomalous gender rather than LGBT, rather than our contemporary um, uh, attempts to uh, 
not attempt, rather than how we're doing it, describing it in a contemporary way, and think about it over that long history of the, the shaman, the, the person who dwells in the tent, the person who wears the unusual clothing or makeup, or, and who goes and dreams. Uh, that seems to be who Joseph is. And also death is always part of that, um, that balance. So when you see, at least in graphic arts, if you see images of the eunuch, you might also see an, a, a shadow of death working in the back or a skeleton. Mm. So, it's mm. a, so there's a lot of death in here too, right? The clothes get... get yes, there's a lot of, lot of death, near death, a lot of tearing of clothes, of taking off of garments. And then uh, there's a death to the full-on pure masculinity in order to enter that liminal space of being, you know. It's a liminal space. so you and, it's, and it's a liminal space with genders, but then it's a liminal space in terms of dreams and in terms of aesthetics, right? That's right. Because you're in a, liminal means on the margins, right? What is liminal? How do we describe like it? Doorway, threshold. It's like the threshold. Threshold. It's, it holds the opposites. The liminal is very important because only someone who really has a unitive way of thinking, who can see in and out, with a larger consciousness, can actually move. Oh, oh, move. Oh. No, it's all right. Move <laughs> on the liminal. They go up and down. They go in all worlds, and that's why the shaman does and that. And Joseph aspect. has that ability because Joseph uh, uh, will say to Pharaoh, "It is not I that interprets dreams. It is God that interprets dreams." You see, he's really. And Joseph will then place. say, to, "This is this is where I want to thank you, everybody. This is what I was trying to n- n- sort of feel my way towards." Joseph is also the one who says when his brothers, when later in the tale, when he, 20 years later, when his brothers come and he reveals himself finally to his brothers, and they're terrified. Remember, so remember the story. Joseph is now the vizier of Egypt. He's in charge of dispersing all the food during the famine, and the brothers come starving from Canaan, and uh, he recognizes them, but they don't recognize him, and there's that thing about recognition again. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, like when Joseph said, they say to Jacob, do you recognize this coat? Or, uh, and, um, uh, and Joseph says, it's me. Finally, Joseph says, it's me, your brother Joseph. Is my father still well? And once they get over their shock, the brothers are afraid to speak to him because they're sure he's going to kill them. And he says to them, no, even if you meant me harm, God meant it for the good so that I could be here to save your lives. So his perspective is, he is, he's got the, he, see, he sees everything. Yeah. I just want to say another thing about non-binary, um, because I think it's easy to simplify it as neither man nor woman, but everything I've read about people who identify as non-binary and why there's a plural, why they're choosing a plural pronoun is because it's about being able to say, today I feel like a man, today I feel like a woman, or neither. Mm-hmm. Or both. I just am. Neither or both, or and I just am, and I am, and, my, and I am fluid. Right. Right, so gender fluid is another term that gets used. And I think the fluidity is mirrored in the clothing. Ah, oh, yes. Uh-huh. And I'm just starting to learn about this, so that's why I wanted to talk about it. So the, the Native Americans um, looked at gay people as actually having two souls. Right. As, Male so, and female. Mm-hmm. In uh, one, one body. And in different, in different Native American peoples, 
that person also had a, a role, uh, a, shamanic role. A, shamanic role. a shamanic role. I remember in uh, the movie Little Big Man. Uh, uh, do you remember that movie with yeah, uh, Dustin yeah. Hoffman and? Uh, uh, well, but one of the things that that was that had never been shown before was that there were men who lived in the tents with the women who were effeminate, but they weren't in that in that particular movie and uh, depicting that culture, they weren't, um, they were completely accepted in their role. They're like that. Right, and they have a place in the society uh, that was, so it wasn't, uh, there was a room for fluidity of, of gender roles in that movie. That's where I learned about that. Certainly in India that uh, is very much the case with the uh, gender-neutral um, men having a role in dance, ritual dance, and they're revered, and they have that uh, revered place in the, in the um, mm-hmm. I guess you'd say shamanic yeah. Yeah. culture. So non-binary, that's so helpful, doesn't mean neither. But, but it's important to be respectful to the gender. It's, res- it's important because we have all been created in this way. And the thing is not that it's male or female, it's how much can the male understand the female inside himself as well as out. And the same is the fa- female. How does she understand the male inside as, as well as outside? So whether they sexually perform or not, they still are what they are. And then there's a description of them in their wisdom sense. In other words, how much do we get in that other place? The shaman prepares for it. And there are shamanesses. I have a wonderful photo of a woman shaman from the south, from the northwest, and her eyes are closed and her hands are open, and she's dreaming where the salmon are, because she can see them. She's present. Mm -hmm. She's present both to the fishing and to the non-fishing. She's present to the salmon and the human. And there she is, all inside of her, so she can tell what's happening. And it doesn't mean you have to annihilate the sexuality, uh, but rather that you have to be so Unitive in feeling and in empathy and in thinking that you can embrace the whole and still keep the distinction because mm-hmm. that's this is like a description of a wisdom teacher You know mm-hmm. when he's wandering I can't tell you how many stories immediately I thought of Dante when he's trying to find his heart so without his heart he can't find God So to find the heart is to find the unitive that we are all here together and that we help each other in this thinking and feeling and it doesn't belong to any one person, the, the thinking and the feeling, but to all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the reasons this is, oh yes, Miriam. Thank you, thank you, Joya. Going back to Jacob. Thank you. Going back to Jacob. Jacob, who is the smooth Smooth-skinned, skin? dwells in tents, while his brother Esau is the man of the field and hairy and hunts. And he has this dream of a ladder. Ladder, and he's going up to God. He has connection with God. Huh. And he, all, my, my, all of a sudden I was thinking, his attachment with Joseph isn't just because of Rachel. Oh, he sees something of himself uh, in Joseph. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Uh-huh, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. <laughs> that suddenly I have a son who understands me. I've never heard this story before. Me neither. I've never heard. So, no, we want to tell a story about the story? 
Why does he love Joseph more than us? Is it because Rachel is his heart's desire, or is it something more he than that? He understands me like no other son I've had, and I understand him, and there's a bond there. And I have to say that um, sheaves tied together are called faggots. Sheaves? <laughs> oh, a faggot of stick? Sticks. Faggot of sticks or sheaves. Like sheaves of wood. But, and when they burned witches at the stake, they would tie gay men around as bundles of straw and sticks. They would tie what? Gay men. Gay men. Well, anyone that's suspicioned, they would put them yeah. along, around and they would Well, it's faggots. a good, so, yes, so, so since faggot refers to uh, a bundle that you burn, mm -hmm. uh, someone named a faggot would be somebody who you might want to burn at the stake. Or... And in fact, they, they did lay men that they suspicioned that were. Really? So it may have been, Shema, you know, in a culture that couldn't stand, In a culture that was. Could in... not handle a binary person. And in a culture that was um, um, actively um, subjugating the feminine. Yeah, mm -hmm. um, so that they which, tied them up yeah. a lot. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. And then all the men who choose to go into this liminal zone by not just choosing a full-on one power, like you get a well, I would think of this in terms of Tefera and Jacob being the balance and Joseph being the continuation of the balance. Which is your thought. Right, because if you think of like Abraham, you know, you know, out in the out of the people, out of the people. Very Abraham's Abraham's archetypal quality in Kabbalah is giving freely love out there. And then Isaac, before you know, he's staying in one place. He's not going wandering. It's not left. Right, Yitzchak. Really not by Yetzay, which really gets you lost. Isaac never leaves the land of Israel. In other words, whereas Abraham comes to so. So now we're jumping to, we're not jumping because we're already headed in this direction, to the level of archetypes and how Kabbalah, how, how Jewish mysticism treats each of the patriarchs and matriarchs. So Abraham is understood as someone who represents chesed, which is unbounded love, uh, you know, welcoming guests, you know. All, um, yeah. Oh, you found that explanation about faggots. Yeah. Thank you. Never heard of it. Oh, wow. but then it says, this is not true. Okay. Never mind. We'll read more. Oh, 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 which? This is Wikipedia. Wikipedia says, Wikipedia is saying that it may not be the accurate description. Let's do some research. Yeah. yeah. No, no, but I think the point is that they were burned, but the reason that that word faggots got associated with um, gay men, uh, I'm not going to continue reading, but it says there's more to read. Okay. Well, actually, they're a group, and this happens also in another word, a Latin word having to do with fascia. Uh, there are um, the fascia first with the strength of the many. If only the brothers were all really united and were in a different place, then they would have had a different story. But this is the story of one against all, or the others all against the one. They're not a fascia, they're not a, a bunch. And it's only as they become unified in a bunch that they're useful. They were the big reason uh, people left uh, certain parts of Sicily was because they belonged to the fascia, and when the Roman soldiers came down, they, they killed them, men and women. And so many of them got on boats and came to America. And they were the anarchists, the unionists, the mm -hmm. people that then later joined with Jews and everybody else who understood what it means to be united in a purpose that's for the good of the all. 
Oh, wow. So maybe the word fascia. It's on the dime. They also were the Oh, I only know the word fascia from from body work. You know, it's like the it's like the connect it's, it's connective tissue. So that's where the word but comes from. People take okay. the term badly. In other words, the fascist. It's also took that term. Oh my God! Yes, don't imagine it's all going to be because they took the term from the unionists who were doing so fascists and people were so for them, and then they crept in. The, my grandmother said they were the worst people in town, and they took the term. They took the term to mean also come being bound together. Uh, the other is in 1905, wow. this became 1920. So you see how time... Uh, uh, time. Well, that also, to make a broader point, uh, the, the way language evolves so quickly based on who's in charge and who's using right. it and who's... And yeah. that's called a, a pejoration, by the way. Oh, really? In linguistics, that's a pejoration so or an amelioration. To example, make it pejorative or to make yes, it better. Yes, and amelioration oh. is like when saloon becomes salon. You know, oh, everyone sits cool. around, don't get drunk, they just do something else. Okay, I wait, can that. I go back? I want to go back here. Thank you, that's all Sounds so like fascinating. Fake news. Huh? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay, so, so then Isaac, who um, never in the book, uh, in, in, in the stories, actually leaves the land of Israel. Yeah, we know. For some it's, reason it picked up you saying Isaac, and that was the end of that. I understand. <laughs> I, I'm getting used to that. Um, Isaac, who never leaves the land of Israel, his life is very contained and constrained, and so he gets identified with Gevura, which is limits and discipline, and, it, and you can always jump in on anything I'm saying. And Jacob is Tiferet, which, and why is Jacob Tiferet? Like we're already talking about, he's non-binary. Oh, that's right. He's in the center. He's in the center, and the center doesn't mean, you know, I'm neither. The center means I know how to employ that's right. restraint, and I know how to yes. employ giving. Mm -hmm. So I can be unitive, as to where to joy is. I can. And I see Jacob as, you know, twelve. That his twelve offspring, representing the twelve tribes representing the zodiac, zodiac. Yeah. it's like he's really the entirety and he's able to love the entirety but I would agree that Joseph is his spiritual continuance yes, yes. and Joseph is his spiritual continuance both in terms of this narrative of the story uh, Abraham Isaac it says uh, Jacob, and then it says, and these are the descendants of Jacob, Joseph right. was. So the Torah is making very clear where that spiritual lineage is. Uh, so um, so I wanted to say something else about, um, that came to mind uh, on this theme. It'll pop back in my head. Okay. Talking about archetype, ar ar archetypes. Yeah. Right, right. It's a thought that I was just holding here while this conversation went on, and that'll just have to float back in. That's okay. okay. Yeah. I think they also. Oh, you wanted to say something, no, Barb. No, 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 Barb, no, no. Barb, you want you were waiting. It's, it's okay. So I, 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 I'm feeling guilty getting off this track for a moment because I love where the okay. is. But I just want to ask you a question about the whole Vayeshev, by Vayishvu, Vayoshev. Um, so I mean, because it's called Vayeshev. Uh, so okay, so we're we're sitting or we're dwelling or 
or sitting down, but Vayashav, which is 29, uh, 37, 29, yes. means he returned, but the book right. is the same, right? Yud, Shin, Bet, um, um, I'm just trying it's, it's got a kamat katan. It's, so it's that, that comes from lehash, um, shuv, shin, vav, bet, means to return. Yashav, yod, shin, bet, means to dwell. Uh, so they're related, but not the same. But thanks okay. for noticing that. No, I was just curious. Okay. Yeah. Yes? I think also Egypt was known as the, and very ed, um, a place that could appreciate Joseph, whereas his brothers didn't get it. Oh, interesting. But Egypt, there was a, um, a, a, a verdant, it was a territory where there was learning going on. Um, uh, I mean, there's a historically, this has been, Egypt has been known as a place of new ideas and, Mama. yeah, the whole bit. <laughs> so it's like Joseph had to go to Egypt in order to be appreciated. And well, that's interesting. Thank you. I remember what I wanted to say. Oh, go ahead. He takes care of everything the way women do. In other words, he goes in and takes care of all the particulars. That's very feminine. He and yet men can do that. My husband does that in architecture. He can't stop loving the particulars. But women do that in lives and in everything, most of the mm-hmm. time. That's why we're multitasking. But there is Joseph, and he's able to go and put things in order. Right. So I want to riff on this a little more. Uh, and here's what I wanted to say. I remembered what I wanted to say. Because of our very concrete orientation towards stories, we read them and we want them to make sense and be a story that we can follow. We forget, and, be, and because we, don't, we weren't trained to read them as spiritual uh, metaphors. metaphors and parables, uh, we forget that every protagonist in the Torah is a visionary or a dreamer, right? How else are they going to find out that there's one God? By reading the newspaper? <laughs> you know, so think about it. You have to think outside the box. Th- you don't just think outside the box. You, you, you yeah, well, no, no, well, but beyond the... You live outside you, the box. Your, your consciousness... You messages. Your consciousness just reaches outside the box. That's right. It reaches outside. And, and so Abraham is sitting in the entrance of his tent when he hears God sees God in the trees, in the oak grove, right? Or he has a vision of God coming down in a, in a fiery furnace. And, you know, all of Abraham, how do you, how do you hear God's voice? Well, according to the Bible, you don't hear it in an ordinary way. You hear it in dreams and visions, waking and sleeping. And you hear it in the wind. And so, uh, Joseph... Uh, Joseph is a dreamer. Uh, Jacob has this dream where he gets his life mission. Moses, most importantly, hears it from a burning bush. What are we talking about? We're not talking about a shrub that grows in the Sinai whose leaves turn red before they drop off in the fall. Give me a break. You know, it's like, how, how, how limiting our modern conception of what how you're supposed to read a sacred text art. Like, it impoverishes us. Impoverishes us. Yes. It, it, like, 
it, and, it, and you'll forgive me, it makes us stupid. Mm-hmm. You know, it makes us actually stupid. Well, it limits us. Um, well, it limits us, yeah. So, uh, because we don't think, so we miss, we, we miss what's right in our face. So just, that's another reason why I, I wanted to have this conversation. Starting with the impetus of listening to Rabbi Lilly, um, I'm trying to wrap my mind around what non-binary means these days, because Lily's the first person who I've really spent a lot of time talking to. Yes? So, it's, I got a hold of this book, and it sounds like some of you may have already read it, but it's brand new to me. It was by Gershon, Rabbi Gershon Winkler, Jewish um, Shamanism, mm-hmm. which is really, uh, I just started getting into a little bit of it, but it's really fascinating. Because they have all that earth-based stuff that they do, like they go to these, well, the first class you talked about, they go to these power spots. Right. You know, and the the earth and the mountains and the wind and all of these things have power. So it's such a, such it was a revelation to me. I never thought of Judaism that way. Right, right. One of those earth religions. Uh Uh-huh. Barb? I can't, couldn't help thinking when you were talking about Dreamer of a song by John Lennon, Imagine. Yeah. This is that section, you know, you may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one, or something like that. Yes, I hope someday you'll join us and, and the world will live as one. It's such, a, to me, uh, such a unifying kind of, just thinking about the world. And, uh, so it's, That's right. No, it's an anthem that carries that message for our moment. Yeah. And if you think of all the stories of uh, some of the great uh, geniuses of modern times, they all tell the story of their childhood where in school especially they were called dreamers and were considered bad students. Because mm-hmm. they were always in that place. You know, or not always, but mm-hmm. they were recognized mm-hmm. for being in that place. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. there's another element of what makes Joseph repugnant to his brothers that's very loud about... Um, he seems to have a kind of arrogance. He does. He does. seems to, you know, want to have power over. He seems to maybe laud over the brothers that he's the favorite. Mm-hmm. I, I'm trying to sure. think. Sure. Listen, Joseph, yeah. Joseph has his own maturing to do. Yeah. He has this, Joseph's a person. Like, none of us is a disembodied, enlightened, perfect being. Right? And not, that's also true of everyone in the Torah. So if Joseph is a person who uh, has this innate gift of being, being both and, of being able to be a unifier, of being able to channel uh, um, uh, prophecy, and that doesn't mean he uh, doesn't have an ego and isn't an immature uh, little, little schmuck. He's also 17. Well, that's my point. It's like, um, uh, precocious he is, yes, but uh, he's going to have to spend a lifetime of ups and downs, and this is another story we've often told about Joseph. He's going to be thrown in the pit twice, Mm -hmm. right? First, his brothers throw him in the pit. Here comes that dreamer. Then, after Potiphar's wife makes advances on him and frames him for rape, which he doesn't commit. He's thrown in the pit again. And, it, and, at, after, and many years have passed until he, two years more pass in the pit, in the, in the prison, uh, the Beit HaSohar, until uh, uh, Pharaoh summons him to interpret Pharaoh's dreams, at which point his next rise happens. And because all the characters in Genesis in, in um, prefigure 
what happens to the children of Israel later, right? Uh, um, Joseph going down to Egypt prefigures how later all the Israelites are going to go down into the pit of slavery. So um, it, it appears in his ups and downs, we can definitely tell a story of Joseph learning and maturing and recognizing when he says to Pharaoh, when he says to his brothers, listen to the dreams I dreamt, and tells them. But when Pharaoh says, now tell me about my dreams and interpret them, I understand you interpret dreams, he says, I don't interpret them, God will interpret them. So one of the stories about Joseph I like to tell is that he appears to have understood more and more deeply about this gift of his and learned, learned to be an instrument of the divine. But how do you know that when you're a child? Right, and so that's another part of the Joseph saga that's very important. To, yes, Rob? One thing, just sort of riffing on your riff about uh, uh, you know, visionaries, I found it very odd that they were, uh, I don't remember who it was, but they were carrying laudanum. Now, isn't mm -hmm. laudanum something that oh, makes they, you that sort of hallucinate? Oh, I have no idea. Sure, yeah. that's what Polar cheese. Okay, let's all find the verse. Hold on, so everyone can keep up with you. It's verse 25 on page 248. So those are the Hebrew names. Uh, laudanum says a resinous product used in the manufacture of perfume. What are the laudanum's oh, other qualities? But I, recommend, I recognize it as, as being a drug. They use it as a painkiller. It makes and, dreams, yeah. and it makes you yeah. go into the other world. Yeah. Laudanum is a tincture of op the opium containing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's what it's like. The opium produces incredible lidded dreams. Didn't they used to give it to women when they got hysterical? Yeah, It contains morphine and codeine. Oh boy, <laughs> and to connect it to women being hysterical, right? right. right? We know the origin of hysteria, right? It's like, it's... Too much hysterectomy. Right, hysterectomy, hysteria. Too much what? Womanness. Too much womanness. Too much womanness, yeah. It was widely used in the 19th century as a painkiller or a sleeping aid. Highly addictive. And the dream. Without it, you're simply an intuitive. The camels were loaded with laudanum, loaded, nosim, laudanum, balm, and mastic. Probably the equivalent of I don't really know what the mastic is. So what's mastic? Uh, are you looking up mastic? Look it up. I don't yeah. Know is. Because uh, those, those camel trains in, in those days were loaded with essential oils to go on the... Right, well, this was the spice trade. This was the, the uh, what do they call it, the spice road. Uh, and the the... I mean, many, many commentators point out that this is an anachronism uh, based on when this story is versus when the camels, uh, when the spice caravans were at their peak. But Mastic is a resin obtained from the mastic tree. It is called Arabic gum and Yemen gum. In Greece, it is known as the Tears of Chios, being traditionally produced on that Greek island, like other natural resins, is produced in tears or droplets like frankincense. And let's see what it was used for. Sun-dried, blah, blah, blah. Uses. Medicine, snake bite. Wow. 
prevention of digestive problems and colds, bronchitis, condition of the blood, antioxidant, antibacterial, wow. antifungal. Antidote to laudanum. <laughs> so I just want to say that because I don't know anything about this stuff, I've always just sort of like read that verse and gone on. I never even thought about it because I didn't know. And the metaphors of them. And they might have used it in perfume. Well, yeah. and they use it, they also talk about in here, um, blah, 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 cosmetic medicines, all of which were used in the worship of the gods in embalming the dead, what we're talking about back then. Oh, this is a note from the conservative Chumash. Right, so the embalming of the dead and sanitizing, uh, sanitizing and deodorizing agents, also insect repellents, and for cleansing the body. Okay, but let's just be clear that that medicine, a medicine man, was also a shaman. Oh, right. So whoever knew this stuff understood the healing, the healing and transformative properties of all these herbs, and would use them. all the worlds uh, that collected them in those mm -hmm. places. And we, we, one would have to assume that they had some kind of transformational qualities of consciousness uh, because that's what we're trying to do inside a temple, for goodness sake. Right. But these are these Ishmaelites who are carrying... The Ishmaelites who are I'm also sure called... How, I'm not sure how, this, how knowing this even you know, affects our story of the story. Where they? Because well, this is really very confusing. So, historically speaking, these verses are considered very confusing. Because first of all, they're called both Ishmaelites and Midianites in the next verse, and then they're called Ishmaelites again. So what does that mean? Uh, who are they? Um, we don't know, except that the Ishmaelites lived in the, the Ishmael's, uh, Abraham's other son Ishmael settles. It, the Arabs consider Ishmael to be their um, uh, and so their patriarch, and um, uh, so the and the Arab peoples were the nomadic uh, caravaneers, and uh, so that's who Ishmaelites are, Arabs. So were they Muslims? No, Islam doesn't get created until the seventh century C.E. So they're J Jewish. What are they? Uh, yeah, they had other gods. Nine. They, they, they had their own. There were different people. They had their own their own religions. The, the, you can't, I mean, this is all, apparently, according to scholars, this is already anachronistic uh, about uh, the, uh, if, if this story happened in the 13th century BCE. That, but I don't really care because what we can tell from this is when these stories may have been written down, where people would have included qualities they knew that maybe didn't exist in the supposed historical moment when this story took place. However, Muslims. Islam is created by the followers of Muhammad in the 7th century of the Common Era. Much, much later. 1,000, 1,200 years later than any of this. The tribes who wandered, who lived, the nomadic tribes who lived in the Arabian Peninsula became Muslims at that point. Right? Before that, they had their own, their own religious practices the word genies and jinns, these were the spirits that they worshipped. Uh, and I Islam, just like Christianity, was masterful at accommodating older traditions and bringing them into their practice. That's traditions we call pagan. Well, we call pagan. They were pagans. Right, right. They were animists. But their ancestor was Abraham. 
if you're literal, if you take this story literally, the the lineage of a- Abraham is a nomad. Okay. Um, who who, yes, but he's an Abraham himself appears to be a, a nomadic herder of of animals, and Abraham is considered to be the first Jew, or the first monotheist because of his insight that there is one God. Um, his lineage then through Isaac mm-hmm. becomes the lineage of the monotheists. Ishmael is not a monotheist. Okay. However, when Islam in the 7th century, which is Muhammad in uh, prophecies and this new faith emerges called Islam, they trace their lineage, they are monotheist. Islam is Islam's monotheistic. Mm-hmm. So Muhammad wants to every, every, everyone who creates a new a new something wants to show its bona fides by showing how it's connected to the ancient past. To right? So so Muhammad, who is very knowledgeable in Jewish lore, because there were many Jewish tribes in the Arabian Peninsula, knows about Ishmael, knows these stories, and identifies Ishmael as the other son of Abraham from whom all Muslims are ah. descended. But that's not historical. Okay. Uh, that, and okay. therefore, if you make the pilgrimage to Mecca, this is one of, for me, one of the deepest ironies of monotheism. Because if you, if you are a Muslim who makes the pilgrimage to Mecca, what you do when you're in Mecca is you, you literally enact the binding of Ishmael by his father Abraham. So, did you hear what I said? Mm-hmm. The biblical story is that Isaac is bound on the mountain by his father Abraham. All Muslims tell a completely different story about Abraham, Ibrahim, that it's Ishmael who he binds. <coughs> the stories are very similar. Um, it's amazing, except that it's the other son. So, you know, again, I say it's ironic that monotheism would, you know, manage to have this argument about which son God loved best by having him be sacrificed on a mountain, you know, it's like... <clears throat> okay, so, go back to this. Ishmaelites, there, there seems to be a lot of historical anachronism in here. Um, and uh, the spice trade, the ancient spice trade that the Arab peoples and the Nabataeans um, uh, managed to cross these caravan routes all the way between India and uh, Greece, you know, they were like, these are really, I don't know a lot about it, but they're really important. But what are the precious uh, frankincense and myrrh that they're carrying? Right. Right, that's the same idea in the Jesus right. story, which is a midrash mm-hmm. on older biblical tales, right? So the problem is we think of them as literal history. <laughs> and they're all, they're all mythicized stories. Um, so back to what I was thinking about 
which is that, again, as someone not knowledgeable in herbal lore, in any of this stuff, it never occurred to me to think, I thought, oh, I guess the Romans and the Greeks like to have exotic spices on their food. You know, <laughs> I, I, that's all I ever thought about because I never, I it never, I just never thought about, oh, these aren't just spices and herbs. These are uh, consciousness. They, you know, what's perfume? Is perfume just to smell good? Is that what it was about? Or, you know, and Joan's whole field is, is, um, is uh, essential, essential oils. And she knows a ton about this stuff that I don't know. Um, but why wouldn't these ancient people, these ancient medicine men, have known about both the healing and transformative qualities of each of these precious items? And why would people go to the trouble of purchasing them as they were shipped across uh, the desert? You know, think about the effort that went into that. And then when they created the story, that's what they brought in. Salt. Go ahead. When they created the story, that's what they brought in. Or whether it was oral or however it was created, they brought in because what they knew about. But they're all, I think it's more than that because all these things are medicines but, and consciousness altering. So I don't know what it means, but it would seem to me it means something that those people that wind up selling him to the Egyptians had all of these healing, consciousness-altering substances with them. That's where my mind went. They're taking yeah. Joseph with them as part of their, yeah. as part of their uh, um, uh, uh, um, arsenal. Our inventory. <laughs> um, <laughs> Joseph yeah. fits right into this uh, particular uh, yeah. bunch of merchandise that they're that, that they're bringing down to Egypt. Um, so then, um, the man that he sells them to... Potiphar. Does he know what a find he has here? What? I mean, maybe he has an intuitive sense of who this person is. Maybe. Everything that Joseph touches prospers. Yeah, that's... This is one of his qualities. Uh, so let's... let's uh, Let's let, let's read about that. Look at page. Um, I just want to say something about the pit before we leave that. Oh, I'd love for you to say something. I feel like that's also. So we have Jacob's dream where it starts from the ground and we get this verticality in the ladder. But part of the way Joseph continues Jacob's project is he even has more verticality by going into the pit, mm. right? And so it's even more of a death. And instead of the water being in the pit, there's this, con this, this theme of snakes and scorpions. Right. And the snake is so often mentioned as biting the heel. Right, the snake bites the heel. Mm -hmm. So that's Jacob again. Oh, right, because the snake, in, in, not just in the story of um, in, in, in Adam and Eve, right. it says, hold on, let's remember this, thank you. It says to the serpent, because you did this, you are under a curse. On your belly you shall crawl, eating dust. And between you and the woman, and between her seed and your seed, I am setting enmity. They shall strike at your head, and you shall strike at their heel. Akev, Yaakov. So yes, there's. A, I never thought about that. So say it again. 
you saying that's, that's like a continuation of Jacob's project? The verticality gets even more increased, and then there's that relationship of, you know, Jacob as both vertical and the sort of horizontal snake dust crawler. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. And what's that? Is that who Adam? That's who Jacob is, because he has to go out, he has to go out into the wilderness, he sees, has to see himself as dust, and he's a heel, and the snake bites the heel, and the snake is this, you know, potentially transmute, transmutational shamanic figure. And I mean, as always. an animal, it's always the, right. the transformer, but it starts out by being, you know, almost evil. It's like, it's dust, it's bad, it's low, it crawls, it doesn't stand, it doesn't, you know, and... And that's the transmutation that has to happen. So again, I would say, like, the fact that Jacob and Joseph are really leveled to the ground, crawling again, learning, having to learn how to stand, having to learn that verticality, there's just such a sense of um, just the continuation of Joseph doing that work. And the snake appears, continuing that snake appears to lose its skin and yet it's still alive. It's a resurrection symbol too. I think yes, it is. comes back. And it's also when bringing in another thing you brought in in Buddhism, when uh, Buddha finds his last temptation and he says, no, I will not fall to that. I will go to the larger thing. He won't be literal. And when he does that, the Nagas who are snakes come and they come and they go around him and they protect him by giving them their hoods. So you'll see Buddha with the hood because now they're unitive. He is now understanding the underworld, this world, and the above world. They are all united. And snakes actually do. I saw this in the south, I'll never forget it. A snake going like that and then all of a sudden crawling up a tree and another one dangling. I had never thought of a snake as above. <laughs> I only thought of it as below, but there it was. And wow. It was a great lesson <laughs> in both the mythic, you know, and in the literal. <laughs> Thank you. So that's what, it's, he has to go down, doesn't he? Yeah. He has to. He has to. Because that's what we don't do to make, unify. Most of us reject it. Now, mm -hmm. I know, I know it's hard. I don't want to see it. I don't want, but you've got to know it or you don't know any of it. You have to well, start back at the beginning. That, that is, uh, yes, Joan. I'm thinking of... Uh, the rites of passage training where one of the uh, metaphors when you're um, on your four day, four night sojourn, water only, you know, a tarp, whatever. On a vision quest. A vision quest is um, the death ceremony where you actually um, dig a little pit and you spend that night in the pit and go through that process of facing that underworld, that transformation, that whole metaphor and, and having that experience that night, so that kind of descending into the nether world is part of that tradition. Right, that's the shaman's death. Mm -hmm. It is, and then they the go, and also there's a, a splitting apart which is dangerous, because the ego loves to keep us together, and it's true, it should. Mm -hmm. And then there's this splitting, the moment before there's the understanding, the unifying, and that's the heart. When you reach that, the power stuff goes, the secular, all of that becomes something else. Because the heart really does teach unity. And that's another word in here, but, um, but you have it to also to teaches dreams, because in dreams there are also divisions that all come together with the dreamer. 
Who's dreaming it but the dreamer? Right, right. That that coming apart thing is actually it's a shamanic practice. That's the dis- right. The dismembering. That's right. That's right. And then the coming back. The and hopefully you get remembered. Yeah. <laughs> to get nice remembered to means to get to mean literally to have your put but back you, together again. Your members you put not. back together. And again. the tribe has to bring the shaman back too. He comes back or she comes back, and then you okay? Yeah. And then the. Um, there. Okay. He's all right. So. Uh. Uh. Did you? Did you finish what you were going to say, Joy? No. I just. I was just saying that it's part of that. Of the part of the unity or understanding um, of what's happening is to go down and go up. And when the unity comes as the group, the group welcomes back the, the shaman. Saying, right, right. Welcomes back mm-hmm. the person who is wiser now because. He or she has gone to both depths. Mm-hmm. It's high steps, has understood the Right. So Joseph went into the pit. He had to confront his own dying, mm-hmm. his own death. Right. His own mortality. Mort- uh, whatever, mm-hmm. all of that. It's from what you're saying, Marka, that he had to let go of the possibility of ever seeing his father again, of ever seeing anyone again. That's this gets me, thank you, there's two things I want to say. One is it gets me back to the, the uh, theme of clothing in uh, Joseph's story, which is that he has, if he's stripped of his clothing, his, this time, first time he's stripped of his coat of many colors, um, then he's stripped of his ego self, his identity, his, the, the self that he's built up, right? And, he, and then when he is then restored to um, uh, uh, this position of power as the chief of Potiphar's household, and then Potiphar's wife wants to sleep with him, and he refuses, and he's got, she's got him by the garment. It's going to use, you'll see this word garment many times. She's got him by the garment, and he lets, he basically takes it off and runs outside. And she's holding his garment, and then she starts screaming, that man tried to rape me. See, I have his coat right here. And he's thrown into the pit again. So the issue of clothing, because then when two years later, when Pharaoh, when the, he, he, while he's in jail, he also becomes in charge of the jail, basically, under the chief jailer. He's just, everyone favors him. He's beautiful of form and beautiful of appearance. And there's something just irresistible about Joseph. While he's in the pit, he again, he rises up to a place of, of, of um, responsibility and he interprets the dreams of the baker and the chief cupbearer for Pharaoh. And the dreams are correctly interpreted. One is executed, the other is restored to his position. And Joseph says, please, when you talk to Pharaoh, remember me to him. And it says, and the, the cupbearer cup forgot. That's the cliffhanger. Right, and he forgot. But two years later, Pharaoh has dreams, and no one can interpret them. And so, the, the, then Cupper said, oh, yeah, there's this guy in jail. <laughs> Who's still there. Who interpreted his dreams correctly. And so they say they brought Joseph up from the jail, shaved him, washed him, and dressed him. Yeah. Oh. And he goes before Pharaoh. And then there's one more time... Um, and then it says, when, um, 
when it, it, this is in Miketz, yeah, excuse me for a second. Um, after he interprets Pharaoh's dreams correctly, it says, Pharaoh, remove, observe, I have placed you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. He dressed him in linen trappings and placed the gold chain of office around his neck. Um, so, so this just keeps happening to Joseph. He keeps getting stripped down and then redressed up again. And so if you think about this as, as someone, um, again, traveling between the, the worlds of death and life, um, the world, the, there's so much transformation going on constantly um, to, until he must come to realize that the outer garments are, don't, don't, are not what he is or something like that. When, is he making the prophecies when he is stripped or when he is, like what's happening? Both. Both, because when he's in jail, he also interprets dreams. So in I, in both cases. Um, it seems like the coat of many colors becomes like an animal skin, and it reminds me of Esau and Jacob, this continuous movement between the animalistic and the really smooth, almost defeat, right? So this kind of, um, but this return to a, uh, Yeah, the animal skin being, uh, you know, bloodied, being. Um, oh, because it becomes bloody. Here, but there's just this, what? They, because they bloody it with a beast. They bloody it and. Did, and they say it's a trapping? Wasn't that the word you read? I, I think I. Uh, did, did I read it or did he use that word? Oh, I don't know. The, the trappings. That Jacob has, uh, Joseph has to learn that the trappings of the clothes are, don't make him. That may be one of the lessons. Another may be uh, on a totally, like, really um, visionary level uh, that, that he, he gets skinned, he gets flayed. Yeah. He, he, uh, he, he loses his physical form. I mean, again, this is a visionary tale. So, you know, so it's going to represent something. Does he... Does, does he become a, a, a? Is this a journey between spirit and form? Is it? It all of those. It's not either or. But yeah. You said that he gets to the point where he doesn't identify himself by his clothes. We, we, the big we, we identify people by their clothes all the time. Which of course is why they brought the. You know, when we're thinking about this story, you know, they bring this. So isn't it Jacob's or isn't it Joseph's, right? And we think about or when. Um, Okay, I'm kind of getting buried off into crazy land here. You know, if uh, someone's committed a crime and you're asking, well, what did he look like and what was he wearing? Well, what is he wearing? I mean, people get convicted all the time because, oh, well, he was wearing this blue hoodie, you know? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's just in terms yeah. of ident identity. Yes, uh -huh. he's uh, taken that and it's no longer something that he's, is, is his identity, but I think there's still, there's still people Thank that... We still identify people and by their what they're wearing. Mm -hmm. So when the brothers come to the court twenty years later, and Joseph is right there, he's dressed as a Egyptian. as an Egyptian uh, vizier. Uh, they don't recognize him. 
So that's another place where the clothing plays, because he's still Joseph. Um, are you going to get it, Marka? Yeah. Thank you. But Joyce is usually... Some, okay, thanks. Hey there. Joyce got it for me. Okay. Um, so long, Jay. Goodbye. Sorry, I got to be on me. I can't sit too long. Okay. Sure. And you're also welcome always to like, we have lots of cushions in there. And... Yeah, no, I have cushions. Oh, okay. We'll take it. Sure. Take care of it. Um, we forgot to say about the snake that yeah. it's also the symbol of the Ouroboros, that which its head and tail are equal. They, it, 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 it joins with both, making a real circle mm -hmm. again. So, thank you. Is that all right? Is that all right? Yeah. yeah, it's okay. So here's the other thing I wanted to say from what you were saying before. In Jewish spiritual language, the descending and ascending are considered to be unsep it, uh, um, unseparable. And it's called Yerida Litzorech Aliyah, which means Yerida. Yerida means descent. Litzorech for the purpose of ascent. And it's completely understood in Jewish spiritual teaching, and Hasidism especially, that, um, and this comes from Kabbalah, that uh, um, you have to, you, you have to descend, you have to go into the pit in order to then elevate. There's no shortcut. And the example they give is the children of Israel going down to Egypt. And Egypt in Jewish spiritual talk, so there's this beautiful teaching which I, I can quote because I should have brought it with me, um, from a Hasidic rabbi named Menachem Nachem of Chernobyl, who really was the rabbi of Chernobyl, where later that nuclear disaster happened. Um, and he interprets this portion, and it says, um, Jacob says to his sons, go down to Egypt to see if there is grain there. But the Hebrew word grain is shever which can also be interpreted as breakage, things that are broken. Because in the Jewish mystical story, the world is filled with broken shards, brokenness, and you have to go down to the world in order to, uh, re in order to liberate the sparks of divinity that are hidden in the place of, in the, in the pit. That you can't, that, that our job as humans is to go down in order to raise up. And other analogies that are commonly given in Jewish talk is about, and I'm sure this is in other traditions too, is about if somebody's stuck in the, in the mire, in the mud, in the tar pit, you have to get down and get your hands dirty in order to get them up. Uh, yeah. Can, also, even though it's not going down, but just like we step back to gain perspective, uh, it's not a going down per se, but we are removing ourselves from here and, and saying, oh, okay. That is like a different move, a different motion. Yeah. That's a different motion because getting perspective is also a way of ascent. It's also like getting a bird's eye view that has an up quality to it, um, whereas descending is when you think about a light, your life, and you think about 
how you are, who you are today. You cannot be who you are today if you hadn't spent as much time in the pit as you did. Well, they describe depression as that you're not willing to go through the pain and the agony to in order to go deeper, in order to, that you stay at the, you don't, you're afraid to go. You're afraid to embrace that dark, dark yeah. space. Mm -hmm. You have to get to the root before you can really help yourself or others. Mm -hmm. All those, since you were describing descent and ascent, yes, hitting rock bottom. When does Joseph hit rock bottom in his story? It doesn't appear to be the first time he's thrown in the pit. Uh, but maybe it's the second time when he's forgotten in jail for two years. You know, if we're going to do a sort of more psychological telling of Joseph's story, he, there's, at some point he hits rock bottom and he says in 12-step in terms, you know, I gave my will over to a higher power. You know, I realize that I'm not in charge. And, I, and then he comes, when it's time to interpret the next set of dreams for Pharaoh, he says, it's not I. When Pharaoh he says, I hear, huh? All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, he got, that's right, he had to get clean and he right. got, <laughs> he had to get, yeah, he had to get clean in jail from his laudanum addiction for two years. So yes, it's the language, same, same, same journey. Same so one, one 12 step term is that some people are low bottom drunks. So they don't just have to go to the bottom, they have to go to the bottom of the bottom of the bottom mm -hmm. before they can heal. And you might not survive. Yeah. And people see God because that's so un unknown and so impossible to think of that when you're at the bottom, you think you're at the bottom, but when something opens and you're further down, you didn't expect that. Oh, <laughs> down, oh, that's yeah. almost <laughs> like if, to be to be a true to be an, a truly uh, effective intermediary between the worlds, you have to have your ego shattered, right? You have to have it destroyed. That doesn't mean you. That doesn't mean that you become. You still learn how to take care of yourself. You still learn how to care for yourself. You still learn to know that it's important that you're well and fed. But the ego that says, I'm in charge, has to be stripped off you, flayed off you. You have to have that coat of many colors, you know, whatever it is. And that, that, that's what will allow a person who, is, who travels between, who is unitive, who, it, it's not about, that I do, it's not me who interprets dreams, but it's God. When Joseph says that, in the story I like to tell about Joseph, when Pharaoh, when he says, Pharaoh says, hey, I hear you interpret dreams. He says, it's not I. Interpretation, this knowledge is God's. Tell me your dream. He's in a different place than he's ever been in his life. His gifts are the same. He's always had this gift. He's always been the pretty boy who's, you know, this one who, who like, uh, everybody, um, loves. everybody loves him. He's irresistible. He's, he, um, he carries the lineage of Jacob, the dreamer, right? He's, he's carrying this incredible, he's the, he's the unitary uh, center of the tree, it's all of that stuff. But that doesn't mean he has to, doesn't have to learn that it's not because of his ego or because of something special about him that makes him so special. Um, 
So I imagine that the best, the best therapists, the best counselors, the best visionaries, the best mediums, the best medicine, the best shamans, uh, know that that they are in. It's not about them, uh, and that their fluidity of identity, which makes it very challenging to live in the world. Right? It's hard to live in the world when you don't have a to- when you when a stable stable uh, kind of sense of this is who I am is exactly what you have to get over in order to fulfill your gift to the world. But it makes it very hard to live in the world, I, I, I would imagine. Um, huh? You might be one of them, so you don't have to Well, I, I, maybe. I, I feel you. very... Don't worry, it's not you. And I don't... Somehow, I don't travel. I, I have my own gifts, which I'm very conscious of and that I try to put in service of everyone I meet, but, for, but, but I'm not boundaryless in that way. I, never, I haven't been, and it, it, it's, uh, uh, though I, I, I taste that realm. It, you know what I mean? But I don't journey wildly in it. Uh, I don't know how to, it's sort of my sense of talking to other people. Yeah, you're saying it well. That's yeah. In, yeah. in dance movement therapy, our role as a therapist is to help the person go from the nonverbal, that they have no words to express what they need to express, they have no language to say it out there. And it is our goal through helping them through movement to find their words. And that was a powerful thing of working with youth with addictions, with chemical addictions, was that um, suddenly. I don't know when they they would talk about the experiences that they had that they had no support around them for their feelings for what they experienced, especially boys. And it was through um, then and so the street they went to the drugs on the street because that gave them not only community but a deadening power. Mm-hmm. And so it was by by creating, by finding their bodies and moving and doing things, playing with uh, clay and arts, all that sort of thing, the arts then gave them another vehicle for expressing themselves so then the words could come. And then the people within that environment were talking, gave them language by just talking with them. So it's very So, but as a move, as a dance therapist, it, it, I love thinking about that because dance is not, is, it's by nature completely fluid. And, and you see, you go from movement, the dance is a sentence, a co- complete piece from all this random movement. You take random movement and you go together and you make a statement with it. And that's beautiful. You embody it. Yeah. <sighs> John, can I have a question? Yeah. So this um, uh, descending to ascend mm-hmm. is something, you know, which I guess the, you want to call this instruct, instructive, is for us to do, you know, internally, right? It's part of our internal right. growth journey. But is this also an instruction to the greater Jewish people? I, I'm, I'm, I just don't know from the phrase or the language, because it, it, it seems to me that that is also our collective sort of 
direction that we uh, go, you know, Yes, yes. So as a people, only to the degree. So I can tell a story about my own experience that's really, that, that gives my, my personal journey into dark places uh, profound value and meaning, which is really what this says, is that if we, think our, if we think the darkness we've been through is only something to be, once we're out of this, it's like, okay, <laughs> a big part of it is that's over, you know, right. it's like, um, but if, if we can embrace it and say, look what I learned and how I grew from that and now, and bring that up to the light, um, then we're in the process of redeeming the, the fallenness and the spark. But when it comes to talking about the Jewish people, I can't generalize. That's not a metaphor. Except to the degree that the Jewish people, that those who identify as Jews, if we all shared that story, Mm. it would be a beautiful thing. Mm -hmm. Right? If if it was like, if we were a a unified enough bunch, (laughs) uh, which I don't know if it's even possible, to share a story about our darkness as being the key to our illumination, then we as a people could take the Holocaust, for, for example, and make a story about it that's redemptive. Right? That's what we want to do. So yes, the Jewish idea of slavery, when we tell the Passover story, is a story that because we were slaves and are now free, it's a redemptive story, and therefore, going forward, we are all going to carry that lesson this way. So yes, I want to tell the Jewish story in a way that is redemptive about the hardships being lessons for how we want to behave moving forward. Um, So I wouldn't say the Jewish people, I would say the Jewish story, as interpreted by many of us, is it's an aspiration that we would all understand the hardships that happened to us as a people as having a purpose of, of helping us grow towards the light. I got it. Here's where, here's where I was going with it. If you, if you sort of look at, um, and this is probably not going to sound politically correct, but Jewish people have often done sort of dark work in dark places, right? Working in jails, uh, working with kids who are addicted and doing dance therapy. And I'm just wondering if that's not a residual that, that onus to sort of lift up uh-huh. and, and go down to what's dark and to help mm-hmm. to, to, to find the light, as you were saying. Um, if that's not just part of our almost DNA, that that's what we've been doing for so many millennia. Yes, and, I think that, it is. Sort of, I'm just wondering if there's a metaphor. I think it is. I think when we talk, when we talk inspirationally about what Judaism's message is, I think that's one of the messages. Absolutely. Social justice, all this. A- stuff absolutely, so absolutely. I think it's part of our part of our story. Yeah, I do. And in in their therapy training is that you cannot go with another person into a dark place unless you've been there yourself. And we call well, it wounded healing. People who've been wounded can heal. Can help a healing right. process in a way that someone like veterans who've gone to. through yeah. all that can do much more support and be there much more than those. Who have right, 
the, the, on, the most, on that most basic level, the things that we have suffered through, grown through, survived, give us the, the wisdom and the understanding to be able to be with other people when they're going through it. Yeah. 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 Go back to Jacob yeah. and Joseph. How so? I go back to Jacob and Joseph because Jacob had um, wanted his father so much, but he had to go through this whole process in order to really struggle to be able to um, to be recognized as a full person. He had to go through everything. I mean, he had to go through hell in a way. Yeah, and, and wrestle with this, um, whatever it was, and um, on his way back to Esau. Mm -hmm. He had to go through all that in order to get his fullness. Mm -hmm. That's right. Jacob had his own dark night. So it's like he, he could, it's like he didn't know how to exactly tell Joseph because Joseph was trying to be liked by all his brothers, but he knew. Let's, so I have just a couple minutes left, and I want to throw out one more uh, mystical archetype about Joseph. Joseph is identified in the Tree of Life, the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, with the um, uh, quality of Yesod. Yesod is foundation, but it's also the area, the generative place, the phallus. Yesod, uh, and it's in the center of the tree, and it's from Yesod that divine energy is released into the world in the right amount. Right? One of the stories of Jewish mysticism is that the divine light is so powerful that it has to come into the world in an immediate, controlled way, or it will overwhelm us. So the shaman learns how to do that, right? Or they die, right? The or they go crazy, right? The shaman learns how to take the energy of the divine realm, of the energy worlds, and mediate it into a dosage that will heal and help and restore. And that's what Joseph represents in the tradition. He's understood as the righteous one. It's also another name for Yusod is the tzaddik, meaning the righteous one. The, right, the tzaddik is both the righteous one in terms of the, being a, a righteous individual, but also a tzaddik in Jewish mystical tradition is the one when you talk about a tzaddik in uh, the mystical tradition, in the Hasidic world, a tzaddik is someone who mediates that energy between God, the divine realm and the, the followers of the tzaddik. Uh, that everyone relies on the tzaddik to be that, that mediator. And in one sense, in terms of generative energy, it's compared to a phallus uh, in Jewish mystical tradition, as I understand it, because Joseph also, when he becomes the vizier of Egypt, feeds the whole world, right? The whole world is in a famine. Joseph has, with foresight, stored up enough food to in enable the world to survive for the duration of the famine. And Joseph's job is to dole out the food in the right amounts so that the world can survive, so that, so that humanity can survive. So his position in Egypt represents also that spiritual description I'm giving of, of how you take the unlimited divine light 
and bring it into the world. You have to know when to restrain yourself and when to allow it to flow, which is also how the Jewish mystical tradition understands Joseph's resistance to Potiphar's wife. Joseph, in his ability to restrain himself sexually at this inappropriate relationship, also is considered to be a master of this quality. Which, uh, so I'm just, you, I hope you, I'm just speaking on multiple levels at once. That I'm thinking about how the jo- why Joseph is chosen as the archetype of uh, the one who knows how to take all of the divine shefa, all the flow, and then send it into the malchut, into the realm of our existence in the right dosages. So that, yeah, Marka. Well, it's like Hesed and Gabor again, right? And so it's also Breshit. So there's the undifferentiated, there's the fully giving, and then things have to be... Uh, boundary. Boundary. Right. Mm-hmm. And so Joseph has become a master of both of those. Mm-hmm. He's descended from Abraham. He comes from the, the energy itself, like picking up a live wire. He's able to do it. We can't, but he's able to do it. And he does then able to parcel it out, as you he say. Parcels he parcels it out. It to, the, to the real, like the food, the grains, the other. But he's all, it's all coming from that energy. Mm. from that amazing what a gift Joseph has what an incredibly you know it's not explicit in the text but what an incredibly difficult life journey he has mm-hmm. like stripped sold into slavery then rises up again he's irresistible and then framed and hated for his beauty and thrown into the pit again, and then rises up again. And um, it appears he's, you know, do you really wish this life? Do you want this life? I don't know if I would want a life like that. Um, He's living in the hand of God. Then he's got another thing going. He's got to understand that he's living in the hand of God. Jesus says, hey, if this could just pass, I'd be very happy with that. Opposed to all these twins or two people where one gets favored and one doesn't get favored. Mm-hmm. It's another liminality right. in that exactly. Joseph's really hated and really loved. Right. Exactly. And they're always returning. Well, let me add one more thing to that, which is, in my opinion, when Joseph, the question in Genesis, and I guess we'll close, close with this, um, and I've thought about this a lot. Genesis opens with a question. Cain says to God, am I my brother's keeper? That's the question. And um, uh, it's a snarky question from Cain, but it's it's the question. And you could look at the entire book of Genesis as uh, the question. Am I? Who answers the question? Joseph. At the end of Genesis, Joseph answers the question with, yes, I am my brother's keeper. And he saves his brother's lives, and the 11 become 12, which is, you know, a completion. And um, uh, the, story, the question at the beginning of Genesis gets answered by Joseph at the end. And also that the 12, again, are separate. Like, they represent different attributes that he's able, like, to love difference and not have to 
smush it all together. Right. Right. Sweet. Sweet. That's exactly right. That's a great image because that is, it's exactly what you can't do. If you can't live the life of Joseph, you can't at the end be your brother's keeper. So in some way you can't oh. smush, just what you said, oh, right. you can't right. smush it. It's a false smooshing if you do that. <laughs> 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 it's not that you want to, it's a want to help, right. but you can't do it. So right, it's false unity, which we, we reach for all the time. <laughs> uh, unity, yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting, I just was reading in the middle of the night a woman was talking about righteousness and one of the uh, parables, one of the uh, uh, beatitudes about righteousness. Uh, and she says, you know, righteousness isn't what people think, especially in the religion she's talking about. It's being good and moral and all that. That's not what God means. In the Old Testament, righteousness is this energy that is so tremendous. Yeah. It's God's energy and it's the creative energy, which is so tremendous that to deal with it, you have to be unitive. You can't be cool. divided because you'll never make it, even on the first little level. Wow. And, and she was explaining that if you understood righteousness, you'd understand in the Old Testament that it's way beyond. Wow. Well, righteousness, said it. Like a law, or you were saying that, put it, that, that she puts it in a way of having to do it this way or that way. What did you call that? You said, what, what was her name, the one who's in uh, divorce, not divorce, what? Um, Esther? The, the, yeah, the feminine energy that wants to put it together but, the, but makes it a law rather than a, or a dogma or something. I don't think you were saying that, but I like about where... A woman, about, yeah, but rather that it isn't that, it can't be that, but you were saying it, I, I heard you, but anyway, it was so beautiful. <laughs> it was very, she it's heard hard. you. It's, it's, I, I, story. So, no, 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 no. <laughs> Anyway, her name, I think, was Deborah uh, in the Old Testament. Oh, who? No, who's oh, then taking No, you other, were saying... Hold on, hold on. Gavora. Okay, we'll let it Never go. Yeah. Gavorah. Go, oh, oh. Gavorah. Oh, okay, we got it. Gavorah. Not Devorah. I heard, I heard it's a... Gavorah. No, no, it's with it. No, but that's, that's, one is, that's one of the sephirot on the Tree of Life. It's the restraint. So it's the restraint. You get the God. It's a word. It's not a person. And it's Gavorah, which means strength or might. Right, right. Mm-hmm. But it's also on the feminine side of the tree, it as it is. So she yeah. was hearing. See there? So, so she I'm telling you, she was hearing something. <laughs> okay. Thank so you I so much. Uh, oh, yes. Uh, I just want to thank you uh, for uh, taking the journey with me. It's, uh, this, is, this is what I want to do in this class, and I hope it's pleasurable to you. Uh, Miriam had, a, had something she wanted to ask. I need, I'm 